Hello there, and welcome to episode one of The Game Pit. My name's Sean, and this is a podcast about tabletop gaming. Hello, Sean. Uh, my name's Ronan. I'll be with Sean today. In this episode one, it's a picking over the bones episode in which we discuss games we've played recently, talk about topics related to these games, and give each other our opinions. Sean, what games would you like to talk about today? Well, today, Ronan, I'd like to talk about Stone Age, Alien Frontiers, and D-Day Dice. And I'll be talking about Milestones, Yido, and League of Six. So, a game we've both played recently would be the Euro game that came out from Stronghold towards the end of last year. That was Milestones. Uh, designers are Stefan Dora and Ralph Zolinda. They've teamed up before on the game Pergamon, which I wasn't the greatest fan of. Stefan Dora's also done games such as For Sale, uh, which I think is a great filler, and Krita. And Ralph Zolinda's done Finca and Tahiti. I haven't played either of them, but they're games you may have heard of. It's for two to four players. And it takes around 60 minutes to play. It's one of, I think, only two Euros that Stronghold Games have released so far. They released the much denser CO2 at Essen, but just before this, Milestones was their first trip into Euro territory. On BGG at the moment, it's slowly climbing up the ratings. I think people are still waiting to discover it. It didn't really have the biggest release. In the game, there's two types of boards. There's the main game board. Half of that is taken up by a victory point track. The game is played up to a certain number of victory points, which triggers the end game. And the number of victory points that one player must score to trigger the end game depends upon the number of players playing. The other half of the main board is an area which is uh, needs developing. You're going to be building on there, using resources you collect. You're going to be building roads with milestones in, hence the name of the game. You're going to be building markets, which you're going to be able to provide flour to for points. And you're going to be building houses as well. However, this is really an abstract. The theme is, like a lot of Euros, just pasted on there. The other type of board is that each player has their own board, which again is split into two. Across the top, you've got eight spaces for workers. You're going to be able to build a tableau of workers during the game. You start with four out of the eight, but every round you go around your board in a rotation, one of those workers gets covered up. You get a chance to buy more workers. And that is one of the main choices you have in the game is which workers you're going to hire into your tableau. They all provide you one of five different types of resources. Those different resources are going to be used to build the different things which we mentioned earlier, all of which can give you points in some way, shape or form. The bottom half of your own player board, there are four buildings there, and that's how you're going to turn the resources you receive when you go across the top of the board in a rotation into points. There's a trading house where you can mix things around, make some money, hire some workers, There's a building yard where you can be able to build one of those three things I said earlier. There's also the mill you can go to produce flour, which will go to markets. And the last building is the castle. And the castle is where you must stop every rotation around the board. You're going to have to cover up one of your workers, as I said before, and you're also going to have to discard down and hold a maximum of three resources. Now, everything you build in the game takes two resources. And that taxation mechanic really means this game is purely tactical. You're not able to build up a strategy. You're not able to build up killer moves. You're going to get taxed every turn. So whatever you produce on a rotation around the board across the top, in terms of resources, you're going to have to use straight away in order to score points. Uh, Sean, any thoughts on milestones? Oh, I've just played it at once uh, with your with your good self. Yeah, it, it came across as a uh, two games really in one for me. Uh, you've obviously got the the main board that you activate all your collections or your agents and get your building materials and then obviously you've got the root building side of the game it felt like a game a little bit split into two for me they linked to to a degree but i didn't feel that there was the best of links between the two they both seemed like almost like unique entities for me and what do you think on that i think that having played it a couple more times i was starting to feel that you can manipulate your, your tableau of workers there in order to take yourself in a certain direction, which does link in then to that board where you can build. You can kind of see if the best scoring opportunities are there for a certain type of building. If the roads have been developed a lot and there's lots of places there to build houses, which they go into spaces which have got a road along one side, so you have to produce the roads before you can really start building houses. If that's there, if opportunities are there, then you can build your tableau in that direction, but only to a certain degree. And my 
problem, if I have a problem so far with this game, is that it's really so tactical. You might start to go that way, and yet someone gets ahead of you, takes those couple of good house spaces that have gone, and suddenly you're stuck again, and you're getting resources that are not going to score you a lot of points. And you can't build them up, you can't save, you can't develop the board in a certain direction in order to go that way. You just have to play what's in front of you. I guess that's both a blessing and a curse. It's not meant to be a long, deep, thinky game. It is meant to be quick. But for me, I think it's maybe a bit too long to be a filler. And yet for that longer game, you know, an hour long, is there enough in it? I've enjoyed it so far. I haven't fallen in love with it yet, though. Yeah, I just felt that the your, your actual gaming board where you're doing all your collecting, as I said before, I thought there was a, a reasonable amount going on there. I felt the other board where you're building the routes and you're building your markets and occasionally collecting your bonus workers, I just felt that was quite light. And now it's probably intended to be that way. I mean, on Board Game Geek... It's categorised as territory building game. I'm not so sure if it should be categorised that. I thought that was the lighter side of the game. And the mechanic is down as root network building and tile placement as well. But I didn't even think it was a massively strong in the root network building. I thought it was more area manipulation, if that's a category. What do you think? I think it is now. You just invented it. And, and again, maybe this is where this disconnects. Maybe you've, you've got caught on to something there in that... The only thing you can really plan is that tableau of workers. The other side, the, the main side, the thing that you'd think you'd be concentrating on is almost incidental. That's where you score all the points, but it's going to have changed by the time you get round every time. Again, hard to plan, so the planning all comes in your workers. I think you might hit the nail on the head there. You know me. Um, I'm not the best route builder. Um, that's not where my strengths lie, by any stretch of the imagination. God made us all unique, Sean. That's okay. <laughs> and that's not... one of your uh, idiosyncrasies. I avoid games with route building. But I thought this was actually light enough where yeah, I could actually enjoy the game. And I did enjoy the game. I just felt... A little bit, as you say, a little bit of disconnect with that area of it. And as you said, that's where you score your points. So for me, I probably should have felt a little bit more important to the game. And it is important to the game. It seems like we're both getting a similar feeling here of, we enjoyed the game, but we're not quite sure why. For me, I don't know how many, how many more plays I'm going to get out of the game. I'm not sure that... While each game has been different so far... That hasn't necessarily been a good thing. I haven't really felt like I've been learning a lot as I've gone through. I don't feel like I'm particularly getting better at the game. I feel like I'm playing it, and things happen, and then someone wins at the end. Great if it's a 20-30 minute game, 60 minute game. But I'm willing to play it some more. It's not awful by any means. It is an enjoyable game. But I'm not sure it's really cracked the code for me to keep it in my collection. I'd like to give it another go. I think the main part of the game where you're actually moving your tile around, I think that's interesting. Having it as one rotation and then everything's got to go almost, that keeps it interesting because you're constantly having to rebuild. But just felt that the other side of the game could have been stronger and more interesting. But again, a game that I definitely want to play again. Cool. So that's our verdict on Milestones from Stronghold Games, Stefan Dora and Ralph Zylinder. Right, next up we have what many people would describe as a modern day classic. And that classic goes by the name of Stone Age. Stone Age, well certainly in this country, is uh, published by Rio Grande Games, and its designer is a gentleman by the name of Bernd Brunhofer. Bernd worked on the likes of St. Petersburg and Pantheon as a designer, but his big claim to fame is that he uh, published and edited, or was at least part of the publishing and editing team for Carcassonne. Now... Just a little bit about Stone Age, for those that don't know. It's a classic worker placement game, with a little dice rolling and some set collection thrown in for good measure. Starting the game with five workers, you and your opponents take turns placing your workers on the game board during phase one, in order to add to your workforce, gather resources, gain end-of-game scoring multipliers and bonuses, or score some immediate points. The areas you can place your workers are as follows. Now you have fixed buildings, which are the farmhouse, where you gain a food field, 
to help feed your worker. The famous or infamous love hut, where two become one, become three. Or, in other terms, you get an additional worker to use from the next round. I thank you for the sound effects. I'm in the mood for love right now, just because of you. Yeah, easy, Tiger. (laughs) I'm going on to the tool shed. Maybe you should spend some time there. Where you gain a tool. Um, Just a little description of tools that they use to basically add to your dice rolls. The fixed resource areas are also where you can place a number of your workers in one go, depending on the space available in the area, providing it hasn't been blocked by your other players, etc. These fixed resource areas are food, because you need to feed your workers at the end of each round or lose some resources or points. Uh, Wood, clay, stone and gold. There's also some non-fixed buildings. These are uh, scoring huts where you use your collected resource to buy these huts and score the points they provide immediately. Some buildings will require a specific set of three resources. Some let you choose the resources you want with gold scoring the most and wood the least. There's also a section where people can buy or claim boats. Now, boats are located in numbered docking areas that provide an immediate bonus and an end-of-game bonus. You buy them, again, using any resources, but uh, you don't have to specify the resource. You can use any resource at all. The lower dog number being the cheapest to buy. This is where you can get things for, like, multipliers, workers, huts and axes for the end of the game. And you can collect what are called culture tokens. The more you collect of those, the more bonus at the end of the game you get. Now, phase two, once you've placed all your workers in phase one, Phase 2 sees you activating the areas that you have workers and either collecting your spoils or scoring your points once you have met the payment requirements. The dice come into play when you're collecting your resources, as mentioned before, food, wood, clay, stone and gold. You roll a number of dice equal to the number of workers you have in the resource area and divide it by 2 for food, 3 for wood, 4 for clay, 5 for stone and 6 for gold. You can add to your dice rolls with an axe, and the final tote is the number of resources you want to receive from that area. Some boats have a dice on them too, and you can roll dice equal to the number of players, and each number will represent a resource to be collected for free, starting with the player who rolled the dice. Phase 3, you feed your workers by paying food equal to the number of workers you currently have, minus the number of food fields you have acquired. Failure to feed, as I said before, you will have to spend any resources you have, and ultimately, if you don't have any resources, you will lose points. At the end of the game, you add up your multipliers acquired from the boats and any other additional points to your score, and obviously, the person with the highest score is the victor. We recently had a game of Stone Age. It's been sitting on the shelf for a little while. And I think we can both agree. We're surprised at how good it is again. It's one of those you kind of take it for granted, in my opinion. And when you do play, you really enjoy it. It's simple, but there's still a lot of thinking to be had. What do you think, Mr. Rice? I agree with you. It's one of the first games, proper hobby games, I ever bought. I remember back in the day, it was one of the first games I played before I ever bought it. And I remember thinking how arcane the scoring for those Civ cards were. It's like, you could score? In squares? I've never heard of anything like it. Obviously now I've got a few more games under my belt. Sometimes there's a tendency for those games you used to like, you kind of go, oh yeah, you know, am I going to like that anymore? Oh yeah, that was a bit easy. This one definitely broke that mould. We played it, and I'll tell you the two things that I thought were big selling points for it. It's smooth. Smooth like me on a night out drinking Bailey's, I'm telling you. It just all flows. There's no kinks in it. There's no, how does that work? What does that do? Everyone just goes. Everyone's constantly going. The downtime is almost eliminated because everyone takes turns to place the workers and everyone takes turns to activate the workers. So everyone's always involved. That's what I think. I think it's a nice, smooth, easy playing experience. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, yeah, the downtime is 
negligible because you place one worker at a time, etc. And also, I, I just feel that it's one of those games that appears really, really simple on the face of things. You're placing things, you're pulling them up, you're scoring the points, but there is hidden depth to it, I think. There's various strategies you go for. Do you just go for the boats? Do you just go straight for the huts? Do you build up your men quickly, or do you make sure that you've got the food resources before you build up your men? I think there's lots of ways to go with this that aren't immediately apparent until you're playing the game and you're thinking, oh, I should have gone that way. Oh, I've left myself open here. So that element of the game I definitely enjoy. Yes, I mean, something I enjoyed about that game we played is that I always go after lots of farms, and if I get lots of farms, I hit lots of men as early as possible. And I did this big time. I got all ten workers pretty early on in the game, relatively early on in the game. And yet I won by two points against another player who had only six workers for the whole game because they'd hit huts really hard and they concentrated on which Civ cards to pick out. They picked the huts multipliers and actually opened up my eyes to another way of playing the game. I just thought, whoever hits farms, they're going to be winning. Not this time. And I just eat it out. So uh, there's probably a little bit more variety there on how to play than I expected. Can I just ask you something, though? Yes. I know you've been playing the iOS version, which came out relatively recently. I was, yeah, I was going to speak about that, but okay. crap. I've also been seeing it down at London on board, the games club I go to, way, way more in the last six months than I did in the three years previous to that, say. Do you think that the iOS app coming out has had any impact on how things is getting played? Definitely, yeah. I think it, it's definitely the reason that I pulled it down off the shelf when we played. I think... Yeah, the iOS version is great. It's fantastic. It is the game. It's one of the best conversions that I've seen into that format for a board game. It does everything, but as I think we've discussed before, you don't get that interaction and that, that, that fun element with the players. When you take someone, the love heart, when someone wants to dive into the love heart and you take oh, it, we have to have the soundbite. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, I just think, I think it definitely promotes the game and it leaves you wanting enough to make you want to play the board game a little bit more. And I think, as you said, at your board gaming group, it has been coming out a lot more often. And I think it's one of the iOS conversions that's been really successful for a lot of reasons. Okay, there's two components I really wanted us to talk about. One's fantastic and one is unusual. Off you go, sir. Please discuss the Stinky Cup. <sighs> I was hoping to get through this without having to go through the Stinky Cup. <laughs> you know, I'm obsessed with that cup. I can't stop smelling it even though it's rancid. You know the Stinky Cup upsets me. <laughs> I swear to you, I cannot stop smelling that cup. The dice cup in this game, it's, I think it's actually made out of real dinosaur hide. It's 65 million years old, and it stinks like it's 65 million years old. It smells! My copy's got to be four years old, and the cup still stinks, and I can't stop smelling it. Let's come on. Let's, let's be honest. It smells like fetid tramp bum. <laughs> it does a little bit. Only in summer, though. It's <laughs> It's got its own aroma all of itself. They've just basically found a, a vagrant and asked him to wipe his pants in the inside of the cup for every copy. It's that little special extra touch. That they... It lasts so long, though. It's still there. It never <laughs> fades. It's amazing. It's one of the things that will survive a nuclear war. Okay, there's another component I want to talk about. This one's the opposite end of the scale. Tell me. How do you feel when you get handed that start player token? I feel joy. I, I feel like I am the daddy of the Stone Age. He's, he is the boss. He is sitting back, stroking his beard, going, go do my bidding. Absolutely. And if you don't assume that pose, then you are not worthy of playing this game. I don't think I can get the pose right. I, it's quite often that I find myself with a chair in front of a mirror, and I, I start trying to lounge, but with authority. It's authoritative lounging that my hand's got going on. I can't do it. I haven't got, I haven't got his gravitas. You need to practice. You have to practice. Otherwise, your, your workers will never respect you. I feel like perhaps when I hit 60 grandchildren, I'll suddenly it'll click. I'll be like, that's my tribe. Those, they all belong to me. Go and do my bidding. Okay, one more question for you. Have you got any interest in the expansion that came out last year? Is it style is the goal? Something like that, yeah. I have no real knowledge about it, uh, to be honest with you. If you have any knowledge, then please do tell everybody. Uh, it's got a silly name. That's about as far as my knowledge goes on this. Fantastic. 
I think maybe that might say something about the game itself in that both of us own the game, both of us have played it a few times, I know it hasn't been out for a while, but I think we've both got, as a secret cabal say, uh, acquisition disorder going on, we both like to buy far too many games, and yet with this one we haven't even thought about getting the expansion. Yeah, as you said, it probably does tell a tale on all its very own there, that the fact that we're not, we're not fucked, it's, it's a good enough game to not need an expansion, to be honest. Now that we're talking about it now, I'll probably go and do some research and find out that it makes the game 20 times better, but... Your mind is weak. <laughs> it's still a great game, even that Spanish version that I got stitched in a in a trait <laughs> that I have. <laughs> Stone Age. Well, I think we're both in agreement that Stone Age is a, a great game that will remain in our collections for some time to come, and won't always be the first game down, but when it does come down, we'll enjoy it thoroughly. Right now, I want to talk about a Vladimir Sushi game from 2007 called League of Six. Vladimir Sushi is quite a well-known Czech designer, part of the wave of games coming out from that country. He's designed 20th Century, came out 2010, it's a game I like. Last Will, which came out two years ago now, I really enjoyed that game. A Shipyard, the Rondles upon Rondles upon Rondles game. I think that was in between the two that one came out. Quite a complex game, but I enjoy that one as well. This game came out before all of those. It's themed around six cities in East Bohemia, maybe. And I believe each player is supposed to be a tax collector. Each player, each turn, is going to visit one of the six cities. He's going to put taxes on them in some way, shape or form. From those taxes, he's going to get influence with one of the three different civic areas of the country be it the clergy or the burgers or something like that. Seems a bit thin. That's why my description is a bit hazy. Also, you're going to be able to collect some uh, horses, which you're going to use to transport goods to the city, which is where you're going to score points. You're going to collect those goods. Now, those goods come in green, yellow, red, and blue. And imaginatively, in the game, they are called green, yellow, red, and blue. That might send you down how thick the theme is layered onto this game. And the other thing you can collect with your taxes is guards. Guards is the currency of the game. The way this is mixed up is, from those six cities, some of them are going to be under attack from an outside force and unavailable to be got into and taxed in each turn. Each player then, in turn order, is going to have to decide which city to go to in a circle around the board. And in order to travel on the road, you use guards as currency. And then when you get to a city... If no one's there, it's fine. You can just go in. It doesn't cost you any guards. If someone wishes to go in a city where another player already is, they're going to have to give them a certain number of guards in order for them to leave and move on. It's kind of a funky auction mechanic, which could be quite clever in a different setting. It's going to cost you to get to the cities which are best, because the level of taxation in each city is going to be different each turn as well. So the ones that have got a high level of taxation are, are where people are going to want to go, but it's going to cost you lots of guards to be able to go there. That's kind of the first phase of each round. The second phase of each round is then, in order of who's had the most horses, players are going to be able to deliver the goods into the city. And there's two different areas they can deliver it to. They can deliver it into the king's court, which is going to directly score them points there and then. Or they deliver it into sort of the merchant area of the city, which is going to get them some more influence with those three civic areas I was discussing earlier. And what that means is it's kind of a set collection thing. There's pink, there's green, and there's brown. At the end of the game, depending upon how many of each of those you've collected, you're going to score some bonus points. The way the cubes are delivered is probably the most interesting thing about the game, I think. There are different scoring boards laid out for each turn. And on the scoring boards, there's five different levels, and they require a certain number of cubes of different colours and they're going to pay you back something for them. But you don't have to have the cubes that are required for each line. You can start a line off and when you start a line you must put as many cubes in as you have at that time. And then the next person to your left, so not in the order of horses but actually to your left, clockwise around the table, they have to fill any of those areas on that line that they can. It doesn't sound so bad because you're going to get points for each cube you put in. 
but only the person who started the line is going to get the bonus. That's extra points on the king side or that influence for in-game bonus scoring on, on the civic side of the board. So it's a way that you can really screw up your, uh, your fellow players. You can make them pay in cubes for less money than they'd want to or less points than they want to, sorry. It's kind of a bit weird because while cubes are being delivered in, in horse order or speed order, this happens in, in clockwise order, so I, I didn't find it very intuitive. And that's how you play League of Six. Sean, I think I should hand over to you for your thoughts on this game before I start digging into it with my machete. First of all, you are unprofessional, sir. Unprofessional. What grievous error have I made? When you are describing a game, you're not giving an opinion. You're not leading people down an avenue of... <laughs> this game, people, is a different style of game. There's lots of mechanics going on. You start off with the auction, as my, as my colleague and friend said. You start off with the auction mechanic. That's fun. Quite often, one city is going to give you a lot more resources than another city. People are going to fight for that city. It's fun. You're betting it. You're, you're bidding against each other. You go into the limits sometimes. Sometimes it's just not worth it. Sometimes you just go into that city. You start off high to get people to give you the soldiers that you might need for later in the game. Cool. There's already avenues to go down. Let me talk about that auction mechanic. Okay, talk about the auction mechanic. I've sir. got two issues with it, okay? The yes. first one is how valuable a city is, how many goods it's going to give out, or how many different areas of taxation it's going to pay out, depends upon the draw of a tile at the beginning of a round. Now, those tiles range between two to five arrows, and they're going to point, and the person who gets to tax the city is going to be able to rotate them any way they like, so the arrows point to which of the six different areas of taxation in that city they can get. That's actually quite okay. My problem is, some rounds you draw out two twos and three threes, and other rounds you draw out one six and four threes. So the round where there's all the same, there's no real bidding going on. Guards aren't changing hands. The only thing that happens there is whoever's been screwed by the war coming to the city where they are, is you have to pay more guards to move on, and, and that's the only way guards go out of the system. It's a closed economy apart from that. You don't, you're paying your guards to each other. So the only time you pay out is when you travel around. If you're made to travel around, it's just a pain. The other time is, if you draw out that one six and loads of other that aren't that great, well, yeah, everyone's going to want to go there. Whoever's got the most guards is going to get it. Whoever manages to be outbid by the person with most guards is then set up for the rest of the game. And it just kind of feels you don't have any control over that. Because once two people get in a bid, you know, oh no, they've got loads of guards. They haven't got as many guards. So they're going to give them all their guards. And you're stuck. You're left out of it. There's nothing for you to do. It's frustrating. I find both of those mechanics a bit frustrating. Listen, nobody said there's not an element of luck to it. There is an element of luck in what comes out and what doesn't come out and whether your city that you were already previously sickened in becomes attacked by the barbarians, etc. But I just find that when you do get these bid-offs, and quite more often than not, there might be one rubbish city and two people are going for the good cities. And I think, yeah, yeah sometimes if you're really, really unlucky, You'd have to be really unlucky to draw similar cities all the time. 99 times out of 100, there's going to be at least one or two rounds where that doesn't happen, and you're going for one or two cities. And it's just a nice battle, and then you still get the choice to what uh, resources you want to pick. And also, Is there ever really much of a choice, though? Really? Are you really ever choosing between more than one or two options? Yeah, you, sometimes you're looking at the board and you're seeing what's going to score you the highest. If you're going for end of game bonuses or immediate bonuses, you're looking at seeing what, what resources that city is going to give you. Also, do you want to build up your soldiers? Have you paid heavily for that city? Do you need soldiers? Do you want to be the first person in so somebody doesn't take the resource that you want? So then you've got to think about getting that dial turned towards more horses. Definitely, I think it's fun. I find it fun. I enjoy that element of the game. But in terms of trying to plan your scoring, it doesn't matter if I think, oh yeah, reds look great this turn, I'm going to take these reds. If someone else is probably going to go ahead of me, and they're going to nick my reds, because you're going to look at my reds and go, oh yeah, They'll score him 10 points. He's not going to get 10 points. Here you go. I'm going to start this line where they score him two points. So you can't even control really how you're going to score. It's down to how the people with the most horses score. Yeah, but then you go for horses. 
Yeah, but then if you have horses, you don't have any queue. There's too few resources. It's very rarely that there's much choice between, oh, shall I take the four horses, or shall I take the three horses and go second? Because it's like four horses or none. That's usually what it is. It's like I go first or I go last. There's not a lot of subtlety in your choices. You're very, very rarely ever at all. What you're going to do is completely dependent on so I'm the person going in front of you. You've still got your options after that. You can still start a line, and other people will have to finish that line for you, if possible. Oh, I disagree, man. I disagree on that one. Often, I find that my scoring is dictated by the people who go ahead of me. And certainly, if I manage to get ahead, I'm definitely trying to dictate how the people after me are going to score. Because why not? Yeah, definitely. But still, you're very rarely you're going to take everyone their resources totally away from them. It doesn't often happen. Let's move on from the auction mechanic. What about that whole delivery mechanic? That's just crazy. Firstly, give the goods some names. Call them Bob, Barry, Winston, and Vermita. I don't care. Just give them Vermeter. names. Vermita, where did you pull that from? He's my friend. Leave me alone. I agree. The game lacks things. You know me. I love my theming games. I'm a and big... how do you love this game? There is no theme. There's more to this game. You've taught me that there's more to games than just theme. It's one of the things that used to annoy me. I used to always be, oh, it's a lovely theme. I'm going to go and get it because it's a wonderful theme. You're like, it's a rubbish game. No, I've gone the opposite way here. I've seen beyond the mountain. I've reached the top of the mountain, my you friend. You haven't, my friend. Uh, You've slipped on the way up. You've slipped into a cavern of obscure Czech rubbish games. I enjoy the game. I enjoy the different mechanics. I enjoy... The stitching up your opponent's side of things. I like the fact that you can be a bit unlucky. I would like a bit more theme, and I'd like the theme to make a bit more sense. Yes, agreed. But I think there's a lot of game for your money here. I picked this up for £6. I did a little jig of Merry Delight. Now, I was at work, and I didn't appreciate it in the office, but I did one anyway. It's a good enjoyable, different game. It brings different elements in the way that it does things. And I play more and more games now, and I'm looking for things that are a little bit different. And this definitely comes into that category. It is different to most games I play, in that I enjoy most games I play. You enjoyed your first few games of this. I did not! We yes, played, this is one of the first Euros we ever played, right? I hated it then. You bought it for six quid, which is a great deal because there's there's a lot of bits in it and I've got some tables that are a bit wonky and the odd chair which I can slip a tile under and suddenly it straightens it out. For six pounds to straighten up the furniture in my house, perfect. I love it. I should have got it myself for that. I didn't like it back what, four, five years ago we played it. Well, you bought it for six pounds. You always liked it. We got it out again recently. Only one thing wonky in your household, my friend. You leave me alone, all right? I'm getting surgery for that. That's not to be talked about on there. Now, this one. We don't often do ratings. I think we have to do a rating out of 10. We'll do one. a rating when, when I review it. <laughs> not before. <laughs> I'll tell you what. For our thousandth episode, I'll let you bring up Liga 6 again. For <laughs> me, I'm afraid Liga 6 is a 3 out of 10. It's a poor game. It's not the worst game ever made, don't get me wrong. I don't sit there wanting to shoot myself, but I just find it themeless. I don't really understand what's going on, and I'm pretty terrible at it. Sean? I would give this game... I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying it's the best game ever made. I'm not even saying it's in my top 20. It's definitely a game I enjoy when it's played. I see a lot more in it than you. I would give this a, I want to say seven, but that's probably more of a reaction to your nonsense. So I'm going to say it's a six. It's a strong six. It's an enjoyable game, which is a little bit different, and there's a lot of elements, all of which I enjoy. I just want to make one argument for elitism in all walks of society. This game's got an average rating of 6.92 on Board Game Geek. <sighs> Tut. The geek is never wrong, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> there we have it, ladies and gentlemen. League of Six from Czech Games Edition, Heidelberger, Spielerberg, and a load of other people, including White Goblin Games.
that is D-Day Dice from Bally Games Incorporated. This is from designer Emmanuel Rackin, who this is his first big project. D-Day Dice came through the Kickstarter funding site, and is essentially a cooperative dice rolling game. The goal of the game is to traverse the battlefield and attack the enemy bunker located at the far side of the game board. To do this, you and everybody else must simply arrive with enough men to survive the horrors of the bunker. If you all do this, you win. D-Day Dice is at its heart a basic dice game in the mould of Yahtzee or To Court the King, where you are rolling and attempting to manipulate dice to get desired results. You have six dice, two red, two blue and two white, which each have resources you need in the game, plus one skull which cancels results on other dice. You roll all six dice, and you must set aside two, and you can re-roll as many of the other dice as you like, two more times. After the third roll, you must keep what you have. The resources in the game are troops, specialists, items, courage, and the aforementioned skulls. As I mentioned before, the dice come in three colours, and this is not just artistic license. Should you manage to roll the same resource in three colours, you get a bonus, even skulls give you a bonus. These bonuses can be quite powerful. For example, if you rolled the two soldier dice on one of each of your red, white and blue dice, you would receive six extra troops, totaling 12 plus any more troops results in your remaining three dice. Once you have rolled your dice, collected your resource, bought your specialists and items and decided whether to move or not, you must enter combat and you will lose the number of troops depending on where you are on the map. On the board maps themselves are a number of squares. Some of them will damage you. There are machine gun turrets which will attack your troops. There are some areas where you will lose your specialists. There are some areas where you'll gain specialists. And the aim of the game is to advance forward, as I said before, and attack the German bunker at the far side. So that's the brief explanation of the game. Mr. Rice, what do you think of D-Day Dice? Well, firstly, I think it's tough. What are your thoughts on that? Well, this is the interesting bit, isn't it? Because, as we both know, there's a, a small community uh, around D-Day's Ice on Board Game Geek that suggests that the game's a little bit too easy. And I uh, will say that after 16 plays, having <laughs> only just cracked the first proper map, perhaps they're a little wrong, or we're just worse at games than we thought we were. I think we came up with a little bit of a theory on that, didn't we? I think people played the first two training maps and thought, this is really easy, and didn't really advance past the training maps, and when they did, they thought we'd get stumped. Yeah, I agree. Uh, first time we were playing that, that first map, I thought I was getting the same feeling, this is going to be easy, I'm going to breeze through this. There are, is it eight different maps in the game? And I thought we were going to crack those with no problem. Hmm, <laughs> it didn't turn out that way, did it? Not quite. The other thing here is, I think it depends upon player number. It's one to four players, and you can share resources if you're in the same space as someone else. So if four players, there's more resources floating around, someone's struggling in a particular area, someone can go and help them. I think we've only played it two or three player, have we? And I think the less players you have, the tougher the game gets. Yeah, but I think the game really does work as a single player game. It's one of the few games that you can actually sit down and have decent fun on your own. Yeah, I agree. It does make me chew the desk, though. Oh, well, a little desk chewing never hurt anybody. <laughs> it cleans the teeth, anyway. What's your thoughts overall on the game going forward? Do you think you're going to get many more plays out of it? I think with all the expansions coming out, Atlantic Wall, where you get to play as the Germans, is very interesting. Uh, lots more expansions where they're just mixing things up a little bit, keeping it fresh. I think there's a lot of life in it, in my opinion. And, uh, yeah, I'm... Looking forward to getting a good few years out of it yet before it ends up on the mass trade. I think that if my uh, cortisone levels stay down, then I agree with you. If I don't get too frustrated with it, treading that line, if it starts getting any harder than it is, the other day we had five attempts, did we, to do that second map? Six. Um, six only, only six. Don't forget the only. If it continues to get any harder, I think it uh, edging slightly towards the frustrating, but I have enjoyed it a lot. I've got more than a dozen plays out of it. It's a good game. It's a good co-op. Certainly, uh, it's kind of funny when someone else rolls really badly and you can mock them. Not so funny when you're struggling yourself. Yeah, and also it's the Christmas present of choice. 
<laughs> for those who don't know what we're talking about, we both bought it independently for each other for Christmas. <laughs> and the last thing I wanted to ask about, what do you think about the theme? I think the idea is that you're starting off on the, or you've just landed on Normandy, it's all gone a bit wrong, uh, you've lost a lot of the troops in your or a squad, are they? Um, how do you think the theme comes through in the gameplay? I think the theme is definitely really, really strong in this one because you are up against it. As much as a, a dice game where you're sitting rolling dice on your kitchen table can represent the uh, struggles of the D-Day landings, yeah, you're up against it from the beginning. And one thing I wanted to, to chat quickly about is uh, the production quality. I just really, really think they've gone the, the extra mile in terms of production quality on this. And there's a respect as well, which I really thought any war game really needs. But there's a respect with dedications to people who lost their lives in the wars and... I think they went definitely the, the whole hog with the production quality on this. Um, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I like it. I like the production quality. I think the maps, when you first see them, are quite small, and that could be underwhelming. And there's a lot of information on those maps. You can have up to, I don't know, 20 different areas. There's lots of symbology. The symbology kind of makes sense. Uh, there's still some of them I'm getting my head around, but it does make sense. Um, maybe the maps are a little bigger, but then... It's very, it's very affordable, isn't it? So I'm not sure I'd want to pay the extra money for bigger maps when it's not a game that's got really deep game. It's just a fun, track the dice, do you get lucky, do you play well? It's not pure luck. I think we've got better as we've played. I hope we've got better as we've played. But, um, but yeah, I, I, th- I agree with you. It's good production. I'm not doing cartwheels, but uh, it is good production. Yeah, OK. Well, just to sum up, my very quick thoughts on the game is it easy to learn, challenging, fun to play, well made, and... Again, respectful of the subject Um, matter. I agree with you. It's a very good game. I enjoy it. And thank you very much for my Christmas present. No worries. Thank you for mine. I am excited, Sean. What are you excited about, Ronan? I'm excited about Yido! Why am I so excited? I can hear you ask. You can hear me ask that indeed. Why are you so excited? Because, as you know, I was at Essen 2012 and I picked up far too many games and this is the best game. Spoilers right at the beginning of this review. You like it? I'm liking it. Good. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be smiling all the way through this one. This game is Yido. Came out from Egert Spiel and Pegasus Spiel. As I said, Essen 2012. The designers are Thomas van der Ginster and Wolf Planker. Uh, maybe that's right. The, I think a couple of Belgian guys who spent five years trying to get this game published. I'll tell you what, it was worth it. Neither of them have had any published titles before. And I'll tell you, Thomas especially is very, very active on BGG. If you mention anything to do with Yido, whether positive or negative, he will be on there and he will chat to you. And unlike some other designers, possibly even some other Belgian designers, David <coughs> He's very reasonable. And those people who I played the game with who didn't like it, he's, he's got in a constructive conversation with them and he's taken their points aboard, hasn't got defensive, so this is going to be a real love-in from me. Lovely. Take us through the game, mate. You know, has been described as Lords of Waterdeep on steroids. I think it's a bit more than that, though. It's a worker placement game. Each player, and it plays from two to five. I've never played with less than four. The game does scale in some degree, but I think the more players you have, the more fun this one is. Two to five players... You're running a house of disciples, what they're called, they're ninjas. Everyone gets to run ninjas in this game. And you're going to be sending your ninjas out to do different missions. There are four different levels of mission. There's green, yellow, red and black, going from easiest to hardest. Those missions are going to be espionage, murder, kidnapping, warfare, all kinds of different stuff. It's set in 17th century Yido, it's the old name for Tokyo. The Shogun, I think, is about to die, and there's going to be a new Shogun elected, and there's all kinds of political machinations going on, and you're involved in it. You're one of the noble houses. It's like ninjas and Game of Thrones mixed together. That's what I feel like when I'm playing it anyway. For these missions, you have a certain number of disciples, and the city itself is split into seven different areas, and in each area, you're going to send them out each turn, and they're going to do different things for you. They're either going to collect weapons which you're going to use for missions or you might send them out to higher geishas you might send them out there to get you new missions to 
pretend to be Christian, steal money from the church, trade with foreign goods. There's all different ways. They're going to go around. One of the main things they do in the city, though, is they're going to complete the missions for you. So these missions come on cards. They have requisites, which you must have or you must do in order to complete. And they're going to have a reward they're going to give you, which is going to be in points. It's going to be, again, in resources. Or quite importantly, it's going to be in money. Each mission also has a bonus requirement, which if you have, as well as the statutory requirement, you're going to get some bonus. Again, either money, points, goods, whatever it might be, more cards. Each round begins with an auction in which you're going to boost up your, your stuff you've collected. Again, weapons or get another disciple or get some more mission cards or get some action cards, which are in the games you can use against each other. Then... Something's going to happen, and there's an event each turn. Uh, that's one of the, uh, the controversial things, which I'll come back to, are these events. But something's going to happen. It might block an area of the city, or it might steal some things from people. It might make something more expensive or something easier to get. Then everyone places their workers. Then there's a watch, which travels around the city, which you should be able to predict the movement off, but it can be messed with in certain ways. You're never exactly sure where the watch is going to go, because where the watches go, they arrest all the ninjas they find there. Messing with that watch can be quite funny. It's one of the ways in this game which you can mess with the other players. There are lots of ways to mess with other players. It is a strict Euro worker placement game, which has got lots of vicious interaction in it. And as we'll probably discuss in a while, I've been involved in a few rounds with this game. It's lots and lots of fun. So, as you build up, you're going to build up a more powerful house. You're going to get yourself some more disciples. You're going to build up your stock of weapons. You're going to do tougher and tougher and tougher missions. And at the end of maximum 11 rounds, whoever scored the most victory points is going to win the game. There is one black mission in there, which is to kill the Shogun, which gives you a heap of points if you're able to do it. It is tough to do, although I have seen it done. Uh, I did it myself once to steal a game, very cheaply, by two points. That ends the game prematurely. It's the only way the game can end before the 11 rounds are up. That's how you play Yido. It's clear already that I love Yido. Sean, have you got anything to say on this one? I will admit, having not played Yido, but you have not been backward in coming forward about your love, obsession, disgusting feelings for this game. Yeah, I've all, obviously, it's something I'm looking at playing and I've looked to play. I've heard what you said before, that it's a much deeper version of Lords of Waterdeep, which is one of my favourite games. Yeah, and also I've heard it plays very similar to a game called Princes of Florence. Again, a game that I've not played. But, uh, yeah, a lot of comparisons to this game, but a lot of good things being talked about it. The only thing, having not played the game, that I can really comment on is having seen the game and seen it, the construction, it looks like a very beautiful game. It looks like all the pieces are well constructed, a lot of colour, looks like very vibrant, well thought out, and a lot of love and craft gone into the game. Do you feel on that score? I think that the board especially looks fantastic. Each area has got its own colours, but it's functional. It's not a mess of colours. Everything makes sense. Everything in the game makes sense. Anyone who's got decent experience playing Euro games is going to look at this board, look at this game, look at the mission cards, look at their own player board, which, by the way, is amazing. That player board tells you everything. It tells you all your hand sizes. It tells you what you start with in the game. It tells you what everything does. It is brilliant. Every game should have these. I hate having to go to a rule book to look up how many allowed am I allowed a maximum of them, two of these, four of them, 17 of those, only if I've got a brother called Stephen. I don't know what that's about. This game has got all the rules down there in front of you. You look at your map and you know what the rules are. Brilliant. And it's a very complex game. Well, no, the interactions are complex. So to have those rules laid out in front of you helps a lot. The bits are beautiful. I love it. I love the game. I love the bits. There's nothing not to love. I'll tell you one thing I do love about it as well. This is a Euro game. It is tight. If you make one bad mistake, you can knock yourself out for two rounds out of 11. It is tough going. And another thing you can do, you can really get in a money hole here. This is not a forgiving game. You can easily spend a whole load of money and leave yourself in a position where you don't have any of the things you need to complete the missions you have. And there's no other way of getting money. What you have to do to get out of the money hole is, that first thing I said in each round where there's an auction, you don't have to take part. You can drop out. But dropping out only gives you three money. 
most things in the game are going to cost you. I mean, weapons cost you six money in the market, or eight, or to buy a geisha that you might need, I think it costs eight or ten money. You see, more than you're going to get each round than you drop out. It's not, I've made a mistake, I'm going to drop out, get a load of money, I'm back in the game. That's not how this one rolls. It's, oh, I've run out of money, what am I going to do? I'm in trouble. And you are in trouble. You are going to really struggle if you let yourself get in that way. And that's something I teach now is, this is not a forgiving game. This is not light and fluffy. It's not going to look after you. You need to look after yourself. So, beautiful, beautifully tough, beautifully horrible. I'm not sure that you're the exact correct person to be deciding if you like it, if you have a brother Stephen. Having a brother called Stephen yourself. Yeah, yeah, I get a bonus in this game by having a brother called Stephen. It's one of the rules. I watched a video from the Essence Spiel. I think it was the Board Game Geek guys talking to the two creators of this. And the, the overwhelming feeling I got from them was was love. They kept talking about it being a gamer's game, a real proper gamer's game. If you know games, you're going to like this because it's got a lot of elements that gamers love. You could just tell that these guys were invested, that they knew what they were talking about, they were passionate, and that they felt that they produced a wonderful experience, really. Just to go back to your uh, talk on the board, as an outside a slider that hasn't played the game, the board, to me, looks a bit messy. It looks a bit cluttered, and it looks a bit, well, obviously, if I play the game, that might, all the fog might clear, and it might, oh, okay, that's this, that does that, that does that, that's where that goes, brilliant. Just from first look, it looks a bit messy to me. Yeah, I mean, each area you can go into, there's usually two, three, four options of what you can do in that area. A lot of the design that's on the board is just explaining what you can do. And the symbology is really simple. There's no crazy kind of race for the galaxy symbols and colours and nonsense going on. Each area, it looks that way, it looks busy because it explains what it does. There's no need to go in there and go, what are the three things I can do here again? Because they're right there. It, it shows you. So the mess, I think you'll find, is, is, is one of a better word, the mess. It's functional mess. It all, it's all there. It's all down there for you. One of the other things I want to talk about is those events. Now, when the first couple of times you play the game, there's certain cards they tell you to leave out. They're called the samurai cards. Uh, they don't have anything to do with samurai, it's just a name for them. And they're kind of the nastier cards that go in the game where you can mess with other people. So having played it a few times now, I've put them in. This is my major complaint about the game, and it's not much of a major complaint. Some of the samurai event cards that go into the game are just pure blatant catch-up mechanisms. That's all they are. They just punish you if you're doing well. One of them is so obvious that it says, whoever's fifth gets five points, whoever's fourth gets four points, third gets three, etc., etc. Now, I don't know why they put that card in the game. In fact, I take it out, the guys I play with take it out, because it's, you've made this game which is mean and nasty and horrible and, and vicious and thinky and you've really got to plan your moves and make the most of your actions. Other players can mess with you anyway and they can block you on the board. And, and then you put in something that seems to be, I don't know, is it, is it for the masses? Is it something to appease people who think it's too hard? Well, you're not going to appease them because the game is damn hard. It takes two and a half, three hours to play. But it's really going to annoy the gamers. Gamers hate obvious catch-up mechanisms. This is an obvious catch-up mechanism. Get rid of it. There's another one called Earthquake, which, if you've built up to a certain amount, punishes you. But if you haven't built up, it doesn't touch you. Ah, oh, that's annoying. That hit me the last game I played. I spent the first two auctions spending all my money getting an annex to my house, which would give me a bonus through the rest of the game and getting an extra Disciple. Third turn, event turns over, annex blown up, Disciple gets nicked. What's that all about? Come on! And the guys who have gone down different paths didn't get touched by it. Those, those cards out. No catch-up mechanism. I hate catch-up mechanisms. Get rid of it. You're gone. Rest of the game, beautiful. It's, it is in my top ten games already, and it only came out a few months ago. Well, I mean, just to sum up, I think everything I've heard about this game has been people talking about the rows they've had. They stormed off from tables, shouting across rooms at each other, telling everyone in their scumbags, coming back and saying, can we play again afterwards? <laughs> I think you might be listening to some of my session reports. <laughs> <laughs> I think this game, 
Apart from maybe Tammany Hall, which hopefully one day we'll cover as well, this game may be the game that's caused people to swear at me the most of any Euro game I've ever played. Because it's not that you can really screw each other up badly. It's that one little thing, one little nibble at the corner of your plans, and suddenly you're blown out for a round or two. Oh, it can be so annoying, but in a good way. In a, oh no, oh no, I'm going to get you back kind of a way. I don't, I, the guys I've been with, you found it annoying but not frustrating. I think that's great. I am waiting. Please, someone, a big publisher somewhere, pick up this game. It's not getting enough attention. Fantastic. Well, I think that me and you probably should never play this game. <laughs> I think there may be blood spilt. There'll definitely be a table flip, probably a glassing or a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> at least a search in the street for firearms. This is a perfect game for the pit. Throw <laughs> us in there into some deep chasm. No one comes out till there's a winner. I've actually put a gum shield and my five ounces in the game box just in case we ever end up playing with each other because I don't want you hurting my teeth and I don't want to hurt my knuckles when it kicks That's off. A, two fat leads into one fat lead lead. <laughs> <laughs> so, someone... Pick up Yido. Someone give it some more love. It's such a great game. Uh, Yido, which came out Essen 2012. My favourite release from Essen. like to talk about is Alien Frontiers. This is from Clever Mojo Games and designed by Tony Nyman. Now Tony has only done a couple of low end games as far as we can find. There was a hook, line and sink and pay dirt. This is the first big release that he's had. In Alien Frontiers you are a brave and daring space colonist trying to build and settle colonies on an abandoned alien world. Alien Frontiers combines a number of game mechanics, such as dice rolling, worker placement, area control, and resource management. The ultimate goal is to build and deploy colonies on an alien world as quickly and as effectively as possible. So, how do you go about this? Well, you roll your dice, which represent your spaceships, and assign them to the orbital facilities around the planet to gain resources or to block other players. Some of the places you can assign your die stroke ships are the solar converter, where you harvest solar energy, which is the more easily obtained of the two currencies in the game, the lunar mine, where you harvest the harder to get lunar ore, the orbital market, where you trade your solar energy for lunar ore, an alien artifact, where you gain alien technology cards. Now these cards give you abilities, bonuses, or even victory points for the end of the game. Raiders Outpost, where you get to steal other players' stuff. Colony Constructor, which does exactly what it says on the tin. You're constructing your colonies. Colonist Hub, which is another way to construct colonies, just a slower, more laborious way. A Shipyard, where you can build new ships. You can go up to six ships in the game. And a Terraforming Station, which is another way to build a colony, but you have to destroy a ship in the process. There's also a maintenance bay where your unbuilt ships live. All placement on the aforementioned areas depends on dice results and the availability of the space. When you build a colony, you place it on the actual world in a territory named after one of the classic sci-fi writers, the likes of Asimov Crater is in there and Heinlein Plains. Overall control of the territory will give you a bonus relating to one of the orbital facilities, usually the one nearest the territory, and when a player places their last colony on the planet, the game ends, and the score at the end of that turn is the final score for the game, of course, unless you're playing one of the expansions. Alien Frontiers has been for quite some time one of my favourite games, to be honest. I like my dice games. I have absolutely no luck with dice. I spend my life cursing dice. But I still enjoy a good dice game, and Alien Frontiers definitely fits into that section for me. It's a very retro sci-fi themed game, very like your 1950s, 1960s space themed books, uh, TV shows. Definitely got a feel of that to it. Uh, I'd like to chew over the cut a little bit to see what you think, Ronan. 
Well, Alien Frontiers was one of those Kickstarter successes, wasn't it? Early doors. When Kickstarter was brand new and none of us knew anything about it. And I missed out kickstarting it. And I think you probably remember my whinging for long, long months while I waited for the second print. And I think I actually missed that somehow. I didn't pre-order it. Ended up getting the third print. I was very, very happy with my purchase. I really enjoyed the game. I find that it was like a fun puzzle to do. That's what every round feels like to me. You roll the dice, there's going to be certain areas that can be blocked by players that have gone before you, and you're going to see what you get in the dice there and then, and then you're going to put them in and try and each round maximise what you do. However, having played it a bunch more times now, some of the things that were fun maybe now are not so much fun to me. I still think it's a really good game, but where before I was eager to play it anywhere, anytime with anyone, now... I will play it sometimes with some people. I'll throw one of those provisos at you, Sean. I think this is strictly a three-player game only. I've just got the expansion at Essen, which brings it up to five players. That's one of those expansions I think is completely unnecessary and that factor. Four players is laborious in this game. Five must be terrible, because there's nothing to do in your downtime. Until you've rolled those dice, you have no idea what they're going to be or where you're going to put them. What are your thoughts on that? You took the words out of my mouth. I, I completely and wholeheartedly agree with you. I really don't think you should be going back to your great alien frontiers depression. You know it upset you. You know it was a difficult time in your life. <laughs> I just wanted it so badly. Go. You've got the game now. You've got it. It's there. <laughs> my life pretty much is a before and after. That's, that's the pivot of my entire existence when I finally got alien frontiers. You can die happy now. Missing that game on Kickstarter may have led me into some poor choices with regards to investment in the 12 months afterwards, but maybe that's for another episode. <laughs> As we have said, yes, I agree with you. I do think there is a kill with more than three players in this game. I think anyone prone to the dreaded analysis paralysis could really, really make this game into more of a chore than an enjoyment. Okay, well, we've had experiences in the past where people have really uh, overthought their play, uh, not had a backup plan when their first game plan was blocked, and yeah, I think this game needs to be roll your dice, quickly assimilate what you've got and where they need to go, what do you, what are you trying to achieve, do that in 30 seconds, everyone has fun. If you sit and take five minutes at go, it really, really becomes a pain. I do think, however, that the analysis paralysis in this game is somewhat a product of the mechanics. I think everyone, when you play it, probably the first half dozen times, you're going to get AP because it feels like those decisions are really important and it feels like you really should be, you know, there's a better way of doing this. I can really eke out slightly more efficiency. However, it's one of those games whereby eking out that efficiency costs you far too much in fun and everyone around the table in fun because no one else has got anything to do while you're doing that thinking. A lot of the time what i found with this game, there's a particular issue where because everyone else hasn't got anything to think about, when a particular player's turn, if they're taking a while, people start to discuss their turn and then they're discussing it with them. And then it becomes that group think thing, which, I mean, that's, that's you have to do it somewhat in co-op games. But actually, I try and keep away from it in co-op games because it takes the fun away from that player who's playing. In competitive games... I hate it. I hate it. But this is kind of something I've learned for over games of it, because I'm sure I did it myself the first times I played. Everyone starts discussing it. You know, you work out the best turn between you. It's not really how I want to play a game. But then we get this straight. I like this game. I like it a lot. But I want to play it with a certain number of players. I want to play it with players who are willing to sacrifice efficiency for fun. Yeah, I agree. And uh, yeah, I think you do have to pick your players for this one. When you get to a, a level where it's just not going to be enjoyable for you to sit there and, and watch people analyse it. Yeah, I think it's a simple, clever, dice-rolling worker placement. It's no more than that. It's not Agricola. It's not Puerto Rico. You don't have to sit there and take 10 minutes or a go. With the right people, I agree. This is a fantastic game. There's three more things I wanted to ask you about with regards to Alien Frontiers. So let's do them quick fire. Interaction. Is there enough interaction between players in the game? I think there is with things like stealing the stuff from the Raiders Outpost. I think the cards lend a little bit of interaction. And I think, yeah, it's interesting to watch what people roll. It's always fun if someone needs a double and they don't get one or if they're desperate for a straight or three, 
around. It's always fun to watch people roll dice, I feel. I just want you to really quick tell us a little bit about the expansion and what it lends to the game. And you've already said that the fifth player is just ridiculous and no point to it. But what does the expansion do and what does it lend to the game? Brilliant. Uh, I haven't played with the other two bits of the expansion, but I'll well, tell you what they are. If that helps. I know you've got the upgrade pack as well, which makes it pretty and shiny. I've got the factions as well now. Oh, have you? Lovely. Uh, what does it add to it? It adds the fifth player, as we said. It adds some extra alien tech cards, but the main thing, the faction things, is every player takes a separate board which provides one docking facility which is theirs. Everyone can use those docking facilities, but they must pay the owner of it if they're not the owner. And if the owner uses it, they get an extra bonus when they use it. For me, I'm very wary about getting this one out because it adds more options, more downtime, more thinking. I'm only going to get this one out with people who I know are quick and I know know the game. I know that's terrible. I hate to sound snobby. I'm happy to play games with anyone. But just not this game, and not with the uh, the factions, because more options, more downtime. And the last thing I want to ask you, probably thing I hear discussed most, both positively and negatively, it's that end game. Everyone can see each other's scores. The way the scores work are, you get one point for each colony you build. If you have area control, so more colonies than anyone else, in a particular area, you get a bonus point. But all the scores are known. That's one of the things actually we missed there that factions adds in. It adds extra scoring. You get bonus objectives. However, without factions added in, all the scores are known. And when it gets towards that end game, every point you take pretty much takes away a point from everyone else. And there's a bit of group thinking, chopping and changing there where you might want to go after a certain area. However, you have to go somewhere else just to take down the person in first. It's one of those games where being first early might not be a good idea. What do you think about the actual scoring? Let's forget about the factions bonus scoring for now. The actual scoring, I, I quite like that. You've got to think more about what are other people doing, what are they going, how do you block somebody. I like that fact. I like the fact that you see the score. The element that I'm not so keen on is somebody can have three colonies left to put on the board, and on they go, they do it. Pull it out of the bag. There you go. I'm putting three colonies on the board now. That's the game over. It's a little bit of a, oh, I but I had, oh, it's just, it's one of those, it's really frustrating. You've got something planned that you were going to finish the game, maybe. And then someone just does it in front of you, and there's not another round, so everyone can have one last go. It's there, it's gone. You didn't think it was possible, but all of a sudden someone does it, it's done. It's a little bit frustrating. There's definitely a race element to it that gets overlooked a lot. If you can get those colonies down, pretty much every time, the person who puts down that last colony is going to win the game, because otherwise, why the hell would you put down the last colony? And like you say, if you can do that killer last turn, bosh, 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 get those points in, very powerful. I like the game. I used to love it. When it first came out, I was deep into this game. I loved it to bits. Now, I really enjoy it. So, Sean, final verdict on Alien Frontiers. I am still in love with this game. I'm quite excited by Factions and what that can bring to it. Obviously, the right company. Uh, I've just, of course, just got to fight down the urge to kill people who stop the game before my game. No, no, don't fight it. Let it go. Better out than <laughs> Nobody needs to see that sort of rage. Okay, so, Sean, what were we just talking about? We were talking about Alien Frontiers. That was episode one of the Game Pit Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and please join us next time for more talk on tabletop games.